welcome to Potentially Catastrophic, episode 8, where I do something a little different. Um, uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about it, but this is a kind of an interlude where I go back and talk a little bit about the books that I've already talked about. So, if you are interested in a little bit less rehash and a little bit more new titles. Uh, there'll be a new episode up tomorrow that might be a little bit more to your taste. Otherwise, please stick around. Uh, I'm going to talk about books and um, try and navigate this completely, completely over-networked brain of mine. All right. Good morning, y'all. Um, I have brilliantly moved my recording setup into the kitchen where the ambient noise is slightly less distracting. Um, you know, it's like bird song, and that's nice, except for that I live with two cats, so there's also going to be cat chatter at the birds and uh, backyard dogs, because backyard dogs are real. So um, this is definitely an atmospheric sort of a book podcast. So this is episode eight, and today I'm actually going to um, address some stuff that was sort of bugging me a little bit. Um, I may do this again. Um, I may not. I'm going to see how this goes. But it was kind of a nice opportunity to re-listen to the episodes, to take some notes about the books that I've been talking about, and begin to notice some trends, and also... Um, think about a little bit more deeply about the relationships that are being sort of randomly established in the oddness of the books I choose and the books that I had read, you know, two years ago and putting them together. Um, so this, some of this is about course correcting, you know, I am human, I am fallible, and um, I think that it's important to course correct, but I also that's not what this whole thing is going to be. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, so I guess here goes. Yeah. So the first up uh, is the Castle Waiting and Woman Under Monasticism episode, episode one. Um, so yeah, so we thought about it a little longer, and um, there are two four, sort of, well, three, I guess, specific things. One is that I feel like my language was not great. Um, the visual images were, seemed to be drawn from sort of 14th century um, Ottoman Empire, well, late Ottoman Empire cartoony sort of Orientalism visuals particularly given that, you know, it's not an Ottoman Empire story. Um, it's a German story from before the year 550. I'm sorry. Like, the more I think about it, the more offended I am, actually. Um, I think that the representation of men in that backstory for the bearded, crucified gilded saint are caricatures um and i know that that happens in fairy tales but i feel like it's peculiarly egregious when you've also misplaced a story into a culture that does not have that story um to represent any group of people within that group as just caricatures and not even whole people so um yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna be more careful going forward about talking about 
regional specificity and time specificity and you know I, I am a relatively wordy person so I am comfortable using too many bland words rather than one offensive word so we'll see uh, that's the the plan is to do better but also um, to maybe get more mad Yay. Uh, yeah I am I'm thinking about it a lot more and I'm gonna have to look at it more closely and see if somebody else has written about it because I feel like the book's been out for long enough someone someone has noticed um, okay episode two uh, called Making a Liar Out of Myself in a Storm. The books are Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings by Joy Harjo and uh, because of course Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. So I wrote down some stuff that I will read. Um, these books need more to bridge them than I have in my wheelhouse. The connection that I made, that of survival and perpetual revolution, is meaty beyond my capabilities at the moment. Um, there's the potential to lead to some really interesting contemplations and reading. Um, I had thought of The Island at the Center of the World by Russell Shorto, um, which is a book about the development of New Amsterdam, which eventually became New York, and I think that that's probably the best bridge because he spends a lot of time talking about the original settlement as being one of trade between many nations um, and how the sort of story of buying the island of Manhattan for a handful of beads is just the most bullshit and how it sort of came down um, into our contemporary imagination. Um, and, and I think it's important, obviously, I think it's important to complicate any bullshit, but um, the, I think that that would make a really interesting bridge. I think that'd make a really interesting essay. Um, even if you just focused on those three books and then where, you know, those books led you. Um, however, that's, uh, that's sort of where I'm at with that. I don't know that I can go any farther. Um, there's also the, um, what is this? The deep wells of narrative that are filled and drawn by native women artists in light of almost 500 years of Euro um, European presence in the Americas. I think that connections that are more personal can be made, but it's also relevant to consider that even from my relatively uninformed position, I can see that there's a direct line between absences of liberties and those liberties achieved. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna spend more time with this one because I think that um, I think that there's a lot more to chew on, and I think there's a lot of directions to go. Um, but I'm not really in a place to go there. Like I feel like anything else that I do is just is literally just going to be a list of artists and work and books um, and articles. So, um, but it was, it, you know, that's, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Okay. Um, episode three, um, Lori Moore's See What Can Be Done and Nagin Farsad's How to Make White People Laugh. Um, the next, the thing that, that I occurred to me um, after, while I was thinking about it, is that these are women who are still functioning in really specifically defined spaces and classes and museums, even though they are both incredibly prolific and productive and incredible creators. Um, they both have this like nicheness, which is not, you know, I mean, that, that might be part of the mantle that's passed down, right? Like the 
that sort of um, not all that well known outside of a X, you know, classroom, museum, um, teaching space in an art gallery kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's a way to make a living, like no shade. It's just, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that those two women kind of share that. And I think that um, that's really kind of, hmm. Um, the other thing I had thought about, and this is something that goes well beyond the scope of um, this specific conversation, although I don't think it goes beyond the scope of this um, project, is that Nagin Farsad, to me, also fits in the Venn diagram of women of color whose first published work is a work of personal narrative. And I'm not sure what to do with that. Um, or I shouldn't say maybe not first published work, but like first publisher backed and supported work, right? Um, I'm thinking about people like Issa Rae and Phoebe Robinson and, um, oh crap, who else? Like I'm literally thinking about this and, and there's just, you know, Lavi Ajayi and, you know, Brittany Cooper wrote another book before Eloquent Rage, but Eloquent Rage is the one that is getting all the press. And it's well-deserved. I mean, I'm not I'm, I'm not upset about it. It's just, um, Lori Moore has been writing for more than 30 years and has never published a memoir. And I think that there's no pressure necessarily for her to do that. Um, I think that white women and white men who are accepted in the publishing world, like they don't have to tell you about themselves until they're ready to. And I think that it is, necessary to notice that women of color um, have to tell you about themselves before, in a book form anyway, before anybody will take them seriously. I think Mindy Kaling had the same experience. And I'm sure, you know, I'm not saying that in the TV world she wasn't taken seriously. I'm saying that, like, the first book that she published was a book that was a personal narrative. And I'm not like I said, I'm not sure what to do with it, but I think it's important to acknowledge. Okay, episode four. I need some tea because this one is going to take a second. Okay, take two. Um, episode four books were Venice by Jan Morris and What I Told My Daughter, edited by Nina Tassler. Okay, I'm actually going to read this um, because... I'm just going to read this. Uh, let's see. Do I have a title for this episode? Yeah, so the title for episode three is Potentially Catastrophic, which makes me very happy. Um, oh, yeah. Sunny and kind of uncomfortable. So I'm still chewing on elements of connection from this, obviously. There is such freedom in walking around a city and staring at its walls and buildings enough to be able to report how many windows are in one building or another or to have a sense of the working rhythms of a car-free city like Venice. The sense of privilege and its access to a guide. What does that mean for a traveler and how does it translate to somebody, to someone who does want to go to Venice or to succeed in the corporate world? My ambivalence is not universal, but my awareness of the absence of freedom of motion for so many people is put in sharp relief when I start thinking about what is suggested by the freedom with which Morris moved through so many cities and countries and the decidedly focused tone that I felt in the book of letters to daughters from accomplished women. 
the tangible effects of privilege and the ability to confer those effects to others, even when those others will never accomplish that lack of privilege is frustrating to me in an almost physical way. I feel like I'm pushing back against something, even though it's not something that I can see or name or feel. So yeah, um, I run into this a lot more now in travel writing than I used to, not because it just showed up, but because I just started noticing it a few years ago. Um, and it's something I grew up in a very privileged world and I am significantly less privileged um, in some ways than my parents were. So like I'm not doing as well as my parents were at my age. I, um, I'm never going to accomplish the kind of um, corporate success that my mother did. I'm never going to accomplish the kind of academic success that my father did. I do not carry this as a burden. It is simply a reality. Um, but I have also in many ways chosen not to. Like I have rejected the access that was offered to me. Um, in some ways, in some ways not, but um, this isn't like a halo moment. It's just a reality of how the world of the patriarchy works and how success works and how some of us do or do not choose to interact with that, um, which in and of itself, P.S., is a mark of privilege that I have that option and that I have acted on it. Um, so yeah, when you put those two books together, and particularly in that place and space of, you know, Jan Morris has such the such a uh, an opportunity to be unnoticed mostly while standing and staring at things, right? In order to write about them effectively, um, at most she might have to say, you know, I'm a travel writer and deal with the guide, right? But like, she's never going, she's not going to be seen as a threat necessarily. I don't want to say never because I think that that's too strong a statement, but but she is not viewed as a threat. Um, and that's seen as appropriate, right? Like you want people to be able to move through the world in a non, and, and, and be non-threatening to other people. Um, mostly because you want people to stop perceiving others as a threat. So there's that, but then there's also this idea that like, like you're supposed to want that, but you're not necessarily supposed to consider what you are, um, what it means to presume that you will always not be a threat. And I think that for people of privilege, um, it is important to remember that you don't get to decide what people think of you. And, and that's something that we do um, regularly. You know, we don't, we are not known for being cognizant of others' perspectives because we don't have to be because that's a mark of privilege. Um, so yeah, so like I, I can feel myself just sort of pushing at a lot of the messaging that comes from um, uh, these books and the kinds of things that, that lead to um, them. Anyway, okay, so that was episode four and a bit of a ramble, so I'm glad that I wrote it down. Okay, episode five, Richard Bach, but feminist-ish. Um, so this was Venice again, but also the Kinabata are waiting for you. I kind of stopped thinking about this one after a minute. Um, there's connections, 
but you know, uh, as I wrote, not all of these relationships have the strength to last. Like, The Kinavata Are Waiting For You is a book that I read for a reading group. The reading group was amazing. I'm really grateful that it existed for as long as it did. Um, it was focused, it was called Feminists in Love, and it was focused on what it means to be a feminist in a loving relationship, and those loving relationships spanned, you know, romantic, friendship, professional, activist, um, fictional, non-fictional, that kind of thing. So it was a very, we had an incredibly broad reading list. Um, there ended up being about five or six people who stuck with it for a while. We spent two months on every book. Um, and we began with bell hooks, like we spent about a year reading bell hooks. And and so reading the Kinavata are waiting for you was, was an interesting experience because we sort of all didn't like it in much the same ways. And as anybody who's been in a book group knows, when you don't like a book, the conversation is infinitely more interesting. Um, and I was very curious about the ways in which we didn't like it and the ways in which we did like it because of that. Um, the person who'd recommended it had read this book at a very young age. You know, she think she was in her teens or early 20s. And like, it's totally, that's an appropriate book for somebody who's that age, you know? Um, that's when you read Richard Bach. That's when you read The 11 Million Mile High Dancer, which is a book that it reminded me of. Um, yeah, so anyway, that was, it's okay to read books you don't like. Yay. Okay. Um, episode six, Eloquent Rage and the Awakened Kingdom. I'm calling this one a specific kind of weight. Okay. So, um, this I'm going to read as well. What a pairing. Also, what an excellent introduction to what I am sure will become the theme of my summer, the books of N.K. Jemisin, which I may have read most of in the lead up to the release of The Obelisk Gate, but I don't remember, so I guess we'll find out. Two things, uh, every summer ought to be an N.K. Jemisin summer, and the connecting theme of travel as an expression of privilege. Um, parenthetical aside, I read a lot of travel writing, I know I said that already, this will be a consistent theme going forward. It's just unavoidable. I have an entire travel bookshelf. It is in my bedroom. It matters to me to be close to it. End of parenthetical aside. There's no way to talk about the nature of travel in the Awakened Kingdom or in the Inheritance uh, trilogy, to be honest, without giving away far more than a simple spoiler, so I'll save it for an essay. <laughs> However, the passage that I read from Eloquent Rage spoke specifically of the women who refused to give up seats on buses, and there's much to consider about how black women in this country are prevented from moving freely, both because of the circumstance of racism and because of the circumstance of sexism. And yet, black women do travel. Their stories get told. They frequently are told in every other genre than travel writing, which is the specific property of white men. Considering the role of movement in these individual books is incredibly powerful. And y'all, seriously, I, there's so much work to be done in just learning how to see, identify, talk about um, speakers in novels or in books of poetry, um, the eyes of the photographer. There's got to be a word for it. I don't know what that is. Um, painters, um, interior design, you know travel is something that is so specifically connected to 
middle-class white men and their wives. Um, and, and it's something that there are a lot of people doing work on. I will probably talk about that more later or in another circumstance because I have done some reading enough to be aware that other people are working on this and talking about it. Um, and the thing that I'm specifically interested in is noting those places where a book is not a book of travel and yet there is travel in it that was done by the writer or by the speaker um, in some way that is necessary to the narrative. So that's going to continue again. And I think it's something that's really important to talk about, um, uh, specifically when written by black women, um, specifically when written by native women, specifically when written by queer people, specifically when, and it's not to say that black women or native women cannot be queer. It's simply that like, there, there's no, there's not a place on the travel bookshelf, right? Like. I firmly believe the canon just needs to be shocked. So um, that's a conversation that's going to continue. Okay, episode seven, revolts at nunneries, uh, women under monasticism in the fifth season. Okay, I'm gonna read this. Yeah, this one's good. This one is so good, I love this. Um, it is, however, the last two are kind of an example of like what happens when you live in a very specific bubble, uh, even though that bubble is, you know, interesting and has a lot of books. It's, it's an echo chamber because there are themes. Um, Women under monasticism and the fifth season. Lena Eckenstein asserts that one of the unique elements of Frankish women in nunneries is that they seemed to rush en masse from the houses that were owned by the men into life in convents and monasteries. Pointing this out isn't, it's not about consent, right? It's not about the women choosing to go. It's about quantity. It's about how many women left home to go into a convent. Um, and it was apparently astonishing. It's also about reaffirming that women maintained positions of power and influence in the church and in the halls of political and military power. At the same time, everyone suffered so much loss in that time, as in many others, but specifically those years. I feel like the connection to the characters in the fifth season is along that shared experience and the experience of forming community in order to withstand whatever the next assault is. We have so much history of coming together to stay alive and then staying together because that's what helped, whether it is still helpful or not. Um, I, I wrote down a bunch of questions like, the kinds of communities that form under abusive management. Um, there are so many examples of people that have come together, not simply because the situation was difficult, but because they were fighting against leadership that made an already difficult situation almost untenable. Um, and then the other question, uh, what is the specific relationship of made family to the circumstances that made it? You know, I don't know. Um, to see these narratives that are in fact very close together thematically, although not literally, is kind of overwhelming. It's a difficult connection to see right away. Eckenstein's prose is not necessarily inviting. Uh, while Jemison's prose is pointed, engaging, and enveloping, which is what is needed in the first book of a trilogy set on a wholly other world with wholly other rules. Her matter-of-fact tone of world building at the beginning helps to lull the reader into thinking that she knows what is going to happen next. So when next comes along, she's slightly shattered. 
which is where Jemison wants her to be so that the rest of the story can find a place to land. Eckenstein's story is dispassionate, which seems to work for the breadth of history she's addressing, but it does mean that extremely dramatic moments get reduced to mere phrases and occasionally excerpts in translation. Uh, I wrote that last night, and now I'm thinking about it, and I'm realizing, and this is a thing that women run into a lot in um, previously male-dominated disciplines, i.e. everything, uh, which is that they have to maintain an almost overly rigid, dispassionate presentation because it, it, we are so much more likely to be called emotional and therefore to have our work dismissed and discarded um, and erased and negated, sometimes in that order, um, that, that there is this, I think, thrust among academic women to be ever less emotionally vulnerable in writing. Um, and I think it's something, you know, I have a feeling that there was, there are conversations about um, authorial presence in academic texts that are beyond me, um, which, is, which is fine, they should be. Um, so I think that it's important to recognize that like when women are emotional on the page, there's so much more going on than an emotionally laden word. Right? There's history there, there's um, social expectation, there's a pushing back. And depending on what group of women the writer is from, that's a, that's a pushing back that has its own unique historical weight. So I had a lot of fun re-listening to the episodes, partly for, um, you know, editing, but also because it was, it was really interesting to see the places where there's more to work on and more to consider. Um, thank you so much for listening. I hope you all have a great day and we'll see you tomorrow.